0: I will provide our intelligence and law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution and our freedom. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens. No more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war. No more ignoring the law when it is inconvenient. That is not who we are. It's not what is necessary to defeat the terrorists.
1: Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elbing. And I'm Ken Rudin. And Ron, I have a
2: question for you. All right. Do the American people
1: want privacy or do they want the podcast? Oh, I would give up both privacy and national security for the podcast. But let me just throw the question back to you, Ken. Who was that person we heard talking before we heard the music? That was a pre-presidential Barack Obama oh. talking about intrusiveness by the government and something that should not stand. Yes. And he was running for president at the time and talking about what a scandal it was that the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, in the world of post 9 11 had become so intrusive, in his view as a candidate, in terms of its surveillance of uh, the entire society. And, of course, George W. Bush is no longer in the White House. Barack Obama is in the
2: White House. If you're just listening to the podcast for the first time, you're learning this. But the policies may not be any different.
1: Well, it's certainly not with respect to the administration of the Patriot Act and some of the other things that were put in place about a decade ago uh, to fight the war on terror. And of course, President Obama, when he was a candidate, was a big critic of some of those programs. But it appears, from what we've been learning in recent weeks, that his administration has used a lot of those same tools in their continuation of the war on terror. Now, maybe Major General Keith Alexander, who's a four-star general and who is responsible for the National Security Agency, testified before Congress this week and said, look, we have stopped dozens of plots against the United States because of our use of some of these powers we have under the Patriot Act with respect to putting together phone numbers that were called overseas with phone numbers that were called in domestic calls. We're not listening to your phone calls, America, but we are keeping track of who's calling whom.
0: The perspective is that We are trying to hide something because we did something wrong. We are not. We want to tell you what we are doing and tell you that it is right and let the American people see this. I think that is important but I don't want to jeopardize the security of our country or our allies.
1: And a lot of the public says, okay, if it's keeping us safe, but a substantial part of the public, maybe 40% or more, have serious doubts about whether or not the government is using this power wisely and whether or not it's being abused or could be abused. And yet, even if
2: 40% of the American public have some reservations, Congress seems to have fewer reservations, especially in the case of Edward Snowden, who released this information. The earlier question, of course, security versus privacy. Now the question on Snowden is traitor versus hero.
1: Which is he? Yes. Or is he a whistleblower? Or is he just a leaker? Uh, All those terms carry rather different connotations. Certainly traitor is a very serious accusation. That's what John Boehner called him. Um, uh, Dianne Feinstein, the chair of the Senate Intelligence
2: Committee, said that this sounds like treasonous acts. And Nancy Pelosi has said that he should
1: be arrested and charged. And and just,
2: just so Angus King, the Independent, said he's endangering people's lives. So we have Democrats, Republicans, and independents, at least in Congress, pretty
1: much on the same side when it comes to Snowden. Also, some of the implications behind the allegations have been called into question because some of the details and some of the technology that has been uh, implied or that's been called into question, we should probably mention that Glenn Greenwald, the person who is the self-styled journalist, perhaps he's a lawyer, he has interviewed this fellow Snowden and he brought him to light at first as an unnamed source and then brought his name to the public and showed a video of him interviewing him. With Snowden's consent. Of course. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And Glenn Greenwald is a long-standing blogger and critic of all of the efforts of the government to uh, surveil the public in any respect and uh, fight the war on terror by compromising people's civil liberties. But when you have somebody in the government in
2: charge of intelligence and everyday security, and when that person comes before the Congress and says, we have foiled many serious plots because of this information... I mean, I know we're leading this podcast with this because we think it's big news, but there's no outrage, or at least there seems to be a limited amount of outrage, given the fact that, according to the government, and of course we're taking the government's word in this conversation, but the fact is that plots have been foiled, either the uh, Times Square bombing, the New York City subway, things like that. We have not seen a repeat of 9-11. And so if it means giving up some privacy to have this security that seems like something the American public uh, wholeheartedly endorses, but clearly uh, Mr. Snowden feels differently. When you see everything, you see them on a more frequent basis, and you recognize that some of these
0: things are actually abuses. And when you talk to people about them uh, in a place like this, where this is the, the normal state of business. People tend not to take them very seriously and, you know, move on from them. But over time, that
2: awareness of wrongdoing sort of builds up, and you feel compelled to talk about it. And the more you talk about it, the more you're ignored, the more you're told it's not a problem.
0: Until eventually
2: you
1: realize that uh, these things need to be determined by the public, not by somebody who is simply hired by the government. In the end, what is the point they're making? They're saying that the United States government goes to some lengths to try to track terrorist activity and that we do have to have very close oversight over that process or it could be abused. Well, it's clear that the president's name has not been
2: associated with it. I mean, if if this is a scandal at all, it's not a Obama-IRS scandal. It's not an Obama-Benghazi scandal. This just seems like the president is above it. I think most people feel that they, they agree with the president, that there are privacy concerns, but of course sometimes they get outweighed by security concerns. And if I were President Obama reeling from questions about IRS and snooping on
1: journalists and things like that, I almost would welcome this as a, as a nice diversion. It's a better ground for him to fight on. Uh, but it is interesting in the way, too, that it unites people on the far left and on the far right. You've got libertarians. You've got Rand Paul saying we've got to go to the Supreme Court and get this stopped. And then you have people on the left, and I would include Glenn Greenwald, generally speaking, in that category, who are outraged about this on behalf of people's civil liberties. And you have the American Civil Liberties Union suing uh, to try to get this practice uh, stopped and to certainly test it in the courts.
2: While you're describing this big split in the country about what went on, there seemed to be less of a split in the Senate this week where they finally voted 84 to 15
1: to finally begin the debate on the immigration bill. That's right. The attempt to extend debate, as they say, which is, of course, the way we talk about filibusters in polite language, was totally unsuccessful. They could only get 15. They needed 41 to uh, stop the bill from coming to consideration. And it does appear that there is a, a strong coalition of people who are willing to move forward along the lines that the Gang of Eight have devised. I don't think this bill's a done deal yet in the Senate. I think there'll be a big test coming up with the John Cornyn amendment on border security, but at least they got it out on the floor and they seem to have the momentum they need to get a big bill done. I
2: mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of people look at the headlines, Senate agrees, 84 to 15, and say, wow, there may be some kind of a deal working here, but you're absolutely right. There are still a lot of Republicans led by John Cornyn of Texas, and some people say this may be a poison pill for the whole thing, but John Cornyn says that before we even talk about path to citizenship, we have to have this border security. And they're talking about basically having a check every year to see if those who are coming across are being prosecuted or stopped or being sent back. And at the same time, until they're satisfied about that, this so-called path to citizenship gets delayed even further.
1: I think that the Senate will pass something. I think it might very well contain a version of the Cornyn Amendment, maybe not as draconian as uh, Cornyn would like it, but it will be enough to make it possible for the House to consider the bill. It will probably also be enough to make the president warn that he may not be willing to sign it with that tough a border requirement as a trigger for the path to citizenship. Well,
2: I'm not sure about that, because I think the president would rather have an imperfect bill than no bill at all. And he has said several times that it is imperfect. Uh, Both sides are giving up a lot. I think the pro-legalization wing of the Senate uh, probably feel that they're giving up too much if they consider Cornyn, but, but I think the president would rather have something than nothing. Although, if you harken back to 1986,
1: we thought we had something there wasn't perfect either, and it didn't do the job that lawmakers thought it would back in 86. I was watching that pretty closely as a staff member in the Senate in 1986. And I wondered at the time, um, there was clear amnesty in the bill, and they embraced the term amnesty at that time. Of course, no one wants to use that word now. Well, the opponents used the word. That's correct. (laughs) It's a killer term, really. And so today, to get people to talk about any kind of a compromise on immigration, you have to reject the 86th Act. To swear it is an amnesty, and you have to say that you're going to really shut that border down with Mexico in particular and guarantee that we won't be getting as many illegal immigrants as we did after 86. All that having been said, the basic compromise here is not that different, and you are essentially saying again, we as a country, we as a business community, want these people in the country, we want them here. And they have to eventually become citizens. That's a tough nut for people to bite down on who don't buy into that whole notion of latter-day, 21st century melting pot and that particular set of sentiments.
2: Well, look, I mean,
1: there are obviously uh, lingering concerns about what happened in
2: 1986, lingering concerns about the term amnesty, and the Cornyn Amendment, of course, upsets a lot of people. Uh, But at the same time, uh, President Obama said this week that I'd rather have something than nothing.
0: And the good news is every day that goes by more and more Republicans Republicans and Democrats are coming out to support this common sense immigration reform bill. And I'm sure the bill will go through a few more changes uh, in the weeks to come. But this much is clear. If you genuinely believe we need to fix our broken immigration system, there's no good reason to stand in the way of this bill. Of
2: course, two of the senators that everybody's looking very closely at are uh, Mo Cowan and Jeff Chiazza.
1: Yeah, those are two of the big question marks, Mo Cowan, of course, being the appointed senator from Massachusetts, and Jeff Chiazza is the appointed senator from your former home state of New Jersey. And that's the political campaign
2: story of the week. Uh, On Monday, it was the filing deadline for the New Jersey's special Senate race to succeed the late Frank Lautenberg four Democrats, two Republicans. First of all, Kiazza, who's the appointed state attorney general in New Jersey, uh, will not run for the
1: term. Uh, I'm Uh, disappointed.
2: But it looks like the action will really be in the August 13th Democratic primary. That's Cory Booker, congressmen Rush Holt and Frank Pallone, and Sheila Oliver, an African-American woman who is the Speaker of the State Assembly, also from Newark, which is where Cory Booker is from. Cory Interesting choice. But anyway, I think it's clear that the leading Republican is Steve Lonigan, a very, very conservative uh, former mayor of Bogota. He ran for governor in 05 and 09, losing to Christie in the 09 primary. Um, but I kind of think that having Steve Lonigan as uh, an unopposed Republican nominee perhaps even helps... Chris Christie, who has his own
1: problems with conservatives, as we're looking at 2016. You mean because he doesn't have to get out there and campaign for some alternative to Lonergan and look one more time as though he is, uh, shall we say, giving a gesture of an unfriendly nature to the more conservative Republicans of his home state. Yes, uh, indeed, that's true. He was on Jimmy Fallon this week. Uh, Poor 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 Jimmy Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. exactly. But the
2: sad news, no Geraldo Rivera...
1: The Fox commentator decided, even though he talked about possibly he talked running, about it. but he's, he's not running. Big teaser. I really thought he was going to run. And I really thought the idea of Geraldo Rivera in the United States Senate, I mean, he'd be no Jeff Chiazza, but no, who is he would be... Geraldo. As you know, um, Cory Booker has 1.3 million Twitter
2: followers. He has already tweeted 28,469 times,
1: which is 28,468 times more than Hillary Clinton. Well, that's remarkable. Yeah. It's truly remarkable. I'm not sure every one of those Twitter followers is in the state of New Jersey or probably able to vote for him in August, but he would have to be called the long odds favorite in this particular race, particularly because we would guess Pallone and Holt would uh, would split the non-Booker vote. They have a lot of money. Uh, certainly, Pallone has
2: millions of dollars in his bank account. He Good was, place to have money. Yes, it is. Uh, he was talking about running for the Senate for the longest time. But of course, you know, Cory Booker is just a phenomenon. I mean, things can change, but we're only talking about August 13th. That's not much time. So I think Cory Booker wins the primary, wins the October general election, and that's fine for Chris Christie because Chris Christie will have Barbara Buono to worry about in November, and he could even carry a lot of members of the state legislature along with him in his landslide victory. I
1: I think the state legislature was very much on his mind. But you're right about Cory Booker. He's a rising star. He's somebody who uh, bids for that same lane that Barack Obama created in national democratic politics. Here's a little bit of the kind of soaring rhetoric he used in announcing his candidacy for the Senate.
0: It is time to have more courage in D.C. to take on the big, complicated problems, to take risks for the sake of our children and families, to have the needed valor, valor, to reach out across lines that divide, to join with others, and brick by brick, as we've done in Brick City, to build a stronger foundation for our future, for New Jersey and for our nation. It would be nice if
2: he had the uh, same enthusiasm for what's going on in Newark as he does about the, uh, his job in the U.S. Senate. Ooh, that's kind of a hard shot. Well, the city is not doing that well. I don't know if it can under anybody's leadership. Of course, I think the previous incumbent, Sharp James, was in some ethics hot water. Oh, and yes, possibly. Hard, which is hard, yes. to Newark, which okay. hard, yes. hard to believe for Newark. Heistwasser. Which is hard to believe for Newark. But anyway, um, that's the battle to succeed Jeff Chiazza in the Senate, but now we have the Mo
1: Cowan race. That's right. So we can anticipate this fall, the end of the Chiazza era okay. in the Senate. But soon to end, just the end of this month, is the Mo Cowan era in Certainly. the United States Senate. Because on June 25th, Massachusetts will elect a new senator in what used to be John Kerry's seat. Right. Some people are
2: questioning whether the race is close at all. Of course, it's Ed Markey in Congress since 1977, Gabriel Gomez making his first bid for elective office. I think the polls are all over the map. I think most people feel that Markey will win, has a, maybe a perhaps seven, eight, nine point lead. Most polls seem to show that there was one Republican poll that had Gomez within a point. And of course, the people who love that the most are the Markey people, because they say, look, they're closing in on us. We need more money. And of course, more money has come in. Um, We've talked about it on the podcast many times why this is not uh, Scott Brown, Martha Coakley, redux. ducks. You know, the situation is completely different. Right, and there are no ducks. No, uh, except for the uh, the orthodox. Uh, they, they, they don't vote <laughs> on um, but, but the fact is, is that President Obama came in to campaign this week. Bill Clinton will campaign on Saturday. So you wonder with the, the big guns going in. If nothing else, they're not going to make the mistake they made
1: with Martha Coakley in 2010 and just take it for granted. That's right. Uh, And we have seen polls all over the place from a one point lead to a 12 point lead for Ed Markey. I think we'd have to make the judgment that an awful lot of people we expected to see run for the Senate, either in the special elections of this year in some of these states we've been talking about or in the states that are up in 2014, are deciding not to run. Is the Senate just losing its appeal? Well, I mean, I know that one big news event of the week uh, came in South Dakota when uh,
2: Congresswoman Christy Nome, of course, there's no place. Like Christy. That's right, exactly. um, announced that she will not challenge former Governor Mike Rounds in the Republican primary. Hmm. A lot of conservatives feel that Rounds is not conservative enough. I was trying to think of a joke, but I didn't.
1: I was going to he say clearly... he, he doesn't square with a lot of the people No, in I, I
2: think Christie is Rounds, but in New Jersey, not in South Dakota Yeah, because she wants to be among her peers. That's all the jokes That's I can think of. That's yeah. all the jokes yeah. you can think of, and thank God. The, the, the thing <laughs> is that conservatives were looking at Christie Nome. They thought she'd be a better candidate than Mike Rounds, uh, but it looks like Rounds will have minor opposition, if any, to replace Tim Johnson in that Senate seat. That's
1: right. In, in either party, really, in the end, uh, not, no one in his own party wants to challenge him, and the Democrats don't seem to have been able to come up with a first-class candidate.
2: No, they came up with Rick Wyland, who's a former Tom Dashiell aide who ran twice for Congress, I think, lost once he got crushed by uh, John Thune. Uh, but, but you know... Now, as, we've
1: all been crushed by John Thune. Well,
2: so have the love and spoonful, because it's darling be home Thune. Moving from the Senate to the uh, gubernatorial races, Bill Daly is now talking about being the next governor from Illinois.
1: That's pretty amazing after the smashing success that he made as chief of staff for. President Obama. And Commerce Secretary. And as Commerce Secretary. And let's not forget the bang-up job as chairman of Al Gore's presidential campaign in 2000. But Bill Daley is talking about running for governor against Pat Quinn in the Democratic primary. Because Pat Quinn is governor. Is governor and
2: very, very unpopular. But we're forgetting also two things. One, does the Daley name translate outside of Chicago? Yes, but
1: it's not a nice word.
2: I think outside of Chicago, it's
1: very possible that Daley could run weekly. W don't think we need to hear the spelling. Okay. Uh, What about Lisa Madigan? Now, somebody has talked about her just about every time a statewide office has has come she, (laughs) So has she. She despises Pat Quinn, almost ran last time. She
2: remains very popular, and uh, I kind of think if she runs, she wins, but the headlines of the week seem to be on uh, Bill Daley.
1: All right. I think that covers the waterfront for some of the political developments of the past week. Before we leave today, we would like to salute the passing of several people who we have known in the world of politics in our lifetime uh, who were prominent in different ways.
2: Well, uh, the nation lost Barbara Vukanovich, who was the first woman elected to Congress from Nevada. She died this week as she was a served from 1983 to 1996. We lost Paul Salucci, uh, the former lieutenant governor and then governor of Massachusetts back when Massachusetts regularly elected Republicans to the governorship. And even before Mitt Romney. Right, exactly. he himself left the governorship to be become President Bush's ambassador to Canada and Doug Bailey. Doug Bailey. He created this political tip sheet called the Hotline in 1987. Doug Bailey used to be a political operative himself. Gerald Ford in 76, before that Nelson Rockefeller, Charles Percy. He liked moderate Republicans, but he became less political
1: himself and more of a journalist in 1987 creating this hotline. Really anticipating a lot of what we see now online in terms of political and a lot of those things. He was the first. Sheet. They wouldn't have been a political. There wouldn't have been these cable wars battling back and forth for Congress without
2: the Hotline. A personal note, um, in 1994... Doug Bailey hired me away from NPR to become the managing editor of the hotline. Full Uh, disclosure. Full 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 disclosure, disclosure, exactly. Uh, Doug Bailey died this week at the age of 79.
1: And we also take note this week of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Medgar Evers, civil rights leader in Mississippi. Uh, That was a period of time, and we'll be seeing many of these 50-year anniversaries over the months to come when the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was reaching a crescendo. This was a uh, tragic event. It was June 1963. Of course, when you
2: think of November 1963, you think of another horrific assassination. But Medgar Evers, every day of his life, risked his life in in, in the pursuit of civil rights, gunned down in front of his home in June of 1963, 50 years ago this week.
1: And that's it for this week's political podcast.
2: You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics.
1: I'm Ron Elving, And I'm
2: Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Brackton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw.
1: Join us again next week for It's All Politics from NPR.
0: The killer waited by his home, hidden by the night, has ever stepped out from his car into the rifle sight.
1: He slowly squeezed the trigger, the bullet left his side. It struck the heart of every man Whenever Spell and died.
0: Too many martyrs and too many dead. Too many lies, too many empty words were said Too many times for too many angry men Oh, let it never be again
1: They laid him in his grave While the bugle sounded clear
0: They laid him in his grave
1: while the victory was near.